1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the 36th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning from the past week. So uh, good afternoon to you,
2: Matt. Good afternoon, Mark. I am a remote. So for the listeners, if the audio is off uh, from our normal recordings, you know why.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, we are doing this over Zoom. So apologize for any uh, audio uh, problems here. We're going to try to get it as clean as possible for you all. Um, But as always, Matt, we'll take the first few minutes and just recap the performance uh, for the year for the major indexes since uh, we are only on uh, March 4th today. Um, Doesn't make much sense going over uh, the beginning of the month. So Uh, Data is as of the close on March 3rd, and as always, it's from stockcharts.com. The S&P 500 index down 7.4% for the year. The Dow down 9.18% for the year. The NASDAQ down 3.22% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 is down 10.7% for the year. The international index, X united States, down 9.07% for the year. And here are the numbers that are really going to surprise people, Matt. The three-month T-bill yielding 0.95%. The two-year treasury yielding 0.71%. And the 10-year yielding 1.02%. So uh, the big news from this week, Matt, was yesterday that the Fed lowered interest rates by 50 bips or 0.5 percent in response to the coronavirus threat
2: to the economy. So, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, my initial gut when I saw that yesterday when it happened around what 10 a.m. Eastern time is, you know, the Fed had cover with uh, interest rates coming down so much, the flight to safety. And they had the cover to cover to cut rates 50 basis points. I'm not surprised. It's the first cut in between a Fed meeting uh, since the financial crisis uh, going back to late 2000s. So initially, not surprised. And I have a saying, you don't fight the Fed. And these cuts tend to be a, generally a positive thing for stocks.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. The only comment I will make there where um, I'm kind of wondering if it was the right move is that, you know, the general thinking behind uh, cutting interest rates is spurring spending uh, throughout the economy. And if people are going to remain fearful and not spend anyway, because of this virus, then I don't know, maybe it was the wrong move, but I guess, you know, time will tell and I don't want to get into it too much this week because next week we're having Brad McMillan, the chief investment officer of Commonwealth Financial Network on the show and I know I want to pick his brain about that, but I guess time will tell to see if it's the right move. I just don't know, you know, if we have any more bullets left in the chamber per se than when the Fed really needs to cut once the recession hits whenever that next one is, you know, I don't
2: know how much help they're going to be able to be, but uh, you know, no, that's, that's a great point. We'll see what Brad says. Um, I spent some time with Brad and um, I have a feeling he's going to talk about Japan and their evolution of how they've monetized the debt and how you know low rates are. But, you know, let's save that for him and let him get into it.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So in other news relating to the coronavirus, the CDC released a everything you need to know about the coronavirus disease fact sheet for the public last week. So we have linked to their PDF in the show notes and just wanted to kind of go over some of the facts uh, with everyone from a post from Michael Kitsius on uh, February 28th. So three points I just want to point out here. Um, Michael writes, the coronavirus is not as communicable as many other diseases with estimates that the pathogen can travel only through the air in tiny respiratory droplets expelled when we breathe, talk, cough, or sneeze, but only carrying a few feet. Unlike measles, chickenpox, and tuberculosis, which can travel 100 feet, but more communicable than HIV or hepatitis transferred only via direct contact with bodily fluids. The second point Mike makes is that the infection rate is estimated to just two to four people, which means that each person who contracts the virus tends to infect two to four others if there's no other containment measures. So, um, and that is slightly higher than the seasonal flu or common cold. Last point I want to make about this, Matt, is that the fatality rate for the coronavirus is estimated at just below 3%. Uh, So for example, the virus kills three out of every 100 people it infects, which is also only slightly higher than the fatality rate of the seasonal flu and drastically lower than SARS that had a 10% fatality rate or Ebola that had a nearly 50% fatality rate. So I guess when you compare it to SARS and Ebola, Matt, that we've seen over the past couple of years, at least right now, the fatality rate is significantly
2: lower. Yeah, absolutely. And the next point I was going to make, Mark, is when you look at uh, total active cases of COVID-19, which is taking uh, total cases since inception minus people that have recovered, the number does continually go down. So a week ago, it was north of 50,000 total active cases. Today, we're just a little bit above 43,000. So the number is dropping. And I'm anticipating with the way the market is acting, in my opinion, we are in the bottoming out phase. And for listeners, to give them a reminder to last week's podcast, I said, once you started to see days where it was up big, the next day it's down big, followed by another day where it's up big. That is exactly what you want to see, in my experience, in the bottoming process for the market. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So moving on to uh, tweets, articles, and research from the week that caught our eye, I'll start here. Um, So this was a blog post from Ramp Capital. So this is one of the funnier Twitter accounts that Matt and I like to follow for good stock market humor. But he also has a blog, which I like to read from time to time. And his latest blog post talked about a passage from a book called Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. And uh, the quote goes like this. It's easy to demonstrate that many people estimate run as high as 90% when put under stress are unable to think clearly or solve simple problems. They get rattled, they panic, they freeze. Only 10 to 20% of people can stay calm and think in the midst of a survival emergency. They are the ones who can perceive their situation clearly. They can plan and take correct action, all of which are key elements of survival. Confronted with a changing environment, they rapidly adapt. So I thought this was interesting and he you know, linked this back to people making decisions in times of panic with the market. And I think this is a, a, a great Uh, comparison because typically people make their decisions in times like this where this is not the time to be making financial decisions. You should have this already planned out or your risk tolerance should already be set where you can handle volatility like this when we see it in the market.
2: I love this, Mark. I think it's an excellent point. You know, it's a little, I'm not saying we're perfect. It's a lot easier for us to look past these things uh, when they occur uh, but I definitely understand the psyche of of what these situations do to the average investor. I I totally understand it, not judgmental at all.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's why we always say that in our experience, it's not smart to make impulsive, important decisions during times of panic because usually when you do. Um, A lot of people tend to regret it later. So this is on uh, my list of books to read, actually, Matt. Um, So I linked to the Amazon page uh, for the book in the show notes if people want to go check out this book, too. Excellent. Uh, So one other thing I had was uh, a blog post, again, about decision making in times of panic. So this one came from Cullen Roche on February 25th. And this was titled, A Crisis is the Worst Time to Learn Your Risk Tolerance and Cullen's blog is titled Pragmatic Capitalism, and we have linked to his blog in our show notes as well. So I just wanna go through uh, some of the points that he makes here. Yeah, do it. So the first point he makes is this. When I talk to new clients, I always tell them, a crisis is the worst time to to learn your risk tolerance. Unfortunately, far too many people do exactly that. They chase returns during a bull market when investing looks easy. And then when times get tough, they learn that while they thought they were chasing higher returns, they were only chasing higher risks. Then they rebalance and sell low to align their portfolio closer to the actual profile, except usually too far in the other direction. One, one thing is that we know for certain if it, If days like yesterday, and this again was last week on February 25th, scared you or made you call your advisor looking for solace, then you're probably not prepared for something that's really scary, like a 50% plus decline. And that means you're setting yourself up to learn your risk profile at the worst time. And when you learn that risk profile, you'll rebalance to make yourself feel better, and you'll likely be selling low after buying high. And this is a really good point, I think, Matt, because you know, this is a good time to think and say, hey, if this rattled me to my core, then I'm taking too much risk. You know, if you're constantly checking the markets multiple, multiple times a day over the past week, then I think a change needs to be made or you're not properly allocated. So that's why we always say that it's, you know, be diligent about saving early on in your career so you can afford to take less risk you know, later down the road. So this is I think where the problem lies that people haven't saved enough in their early years, and they can't afford to take less risk right now, because they need to make up for not saving appropriately earlier in their years. So I think, you know, the, the thing that goes back to how we always say, you need to start saving early, you can take a lot less risk later in your career if you do. But if you're playing catch-up, then you, not, you can't necessarily afford to take you know, risk off the table if you need to make up for, for not saving earlier in your career.
2: I think this is extremely well put, Mark. Good job.
1: Um, so I thought that that was, that was really good. Um, Colin goes on to say uh, he lists a couple of questions that might help um, people figure out whether your risk profile is right. And one of the questions that he uh, posed to people that caught my eye was, what return do you need versus what return do you want? We all want higher returns, but most of us end up chasing higher returns than we need, thereby chasing higher risk and increasing our our behavioral risk. So for example, if you're in retirement and you're figuring out how much income you need um, and how much you have to invest in risk assets to achieve that goal, if your goal is you know, make as much money as possible, you have to be comfortable with the risk that that strategy comes with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you need to think about you know, how much do I really need in retirement and if you don't need a return on your assets for let's say 8% per year to live in retirement the way you want to, then you don't necessarily have to be in a 100% stock portfolio, right? Because you know, someone that has, you know, for example, $15 million you know, if they only need 3% of that to live off of every year, that's a drastically different investment portfolio than someone, you know, who only has $500,000 saved up, you know? So I think it all depends on people's situation. So I think that's a good question that people need to consider in times like this, um, to really get their investment portfolios aligned with what their goals are. Well put. Um, and then the last part I like just because me and you talk about this with people watching the, the media and the markets internal turmoil on CNBC. Um, he says, the only other thing I can tell you during this strange time is this turn off the TV, stop feeding your brain with behavioral <laughs> risk.
2: <laughs>
1: stop reading pundits who detect, who pretend to know exactly what the outcome will be and position your portfolio so that you know you can stick with it even if it's a worst case scenario and if that were to transpire. So I well, couldn't have said it better myself. We've talked about that before, um, but I'll turn it back over
2: to you. No, I mean, well put. I mean, so the next thing I was gonna discuss is just some statistics on the market from Braver Capital Management on February 28th. Mark, before I say that, for the listeners, I wanna educate them uh, that when this following sentence is made, I want you to perk up and I want you to know that I'm going to throw out my opinion 18 or 19 times out of 20, this statement is wrong. You ready, Mark? Okay. It's different this time. (laughs) When you hear the term, it is different this time, you got to perk up because the market is in the mode of repeating itself, right? Right. So I'm going to give you some statistics because Everyone talking about COVID-19, Mark. We never saw something spread this quick. It's different this time. And I immediately get in a very skeptical mode because I have now been in the market, uh, in the industry now for over 20 years. Um, there's been a lot of people in the market a lot longer than me. But I've learned that it's very expensive to use the term it's different this time yeah i totally agree totally agree so, i'm going to go over some braver statistics that and i'm going to quote you ready okay february 28th quote since its inception the s p 500 index has averaged an 8.3 percent gain over all 12 month rolling periods but after the 15 times the s p fell more than 12 percent in six days mark the average 12 month return jumped up to 9. 90- That's what you call a nice rebound. And even better, the index was higher, 14 out of 15 cases. Now, statistically, I feel like it would be not smart to go against these statistics. The next thing, in quote, in any given calendar year, the S&P index averages a decline of 13 to 14%. So the current decline, and this is discussing what it was on February 28th to get perspective, the current decline is roughly on par with what you should expect entering any given calendar year. Granted, it has run faster than the average decline. Still, remember that despite averaging intraday declines of 13 to 14%, the S&P index has compounded At nearly 11% a year over the last 36 years or so. Stock market declines, pullbacks, corrections, and even bear markets are a fact of life for investors. And yet the long term track record speaks for itself. Your comment.
1: Yeah, I I agree with you. I think that, um, you know, a lot of people forget that in order to enjoy the Uh, Above average returns, above average. When I'm talking about other asset classes, um, to enjoy these stock returns that we've gotten over the past, say, 36 years from the quote you just mentioned, you have to take a certain amount of risk in the market and be comfortable when you see the S&P 500 come off of you know 13 to 15 to even 20 percent off of its highs. (laughs) So if that didn't happen in the market every single year, then you know, the returns wouldn't be as good in stocks as over any other asset. Um, So to be able to enjoy these nice returns, say, over a money market fund or a certificate of deposit, you know, the stock market comes with its risks. So the more risk you take generally over a longer period of time, the more reward you enjoy. Um, But again, during times like this, when sell-offs are quick and swift, like they have been
2: over the past week, it's hard for people to remember that. Yep. So the next piece that will just help give perspective is from Bespoke Investment Group. It is a a research firm, uh, listeners that uh, Mark and I subscribe to. What they do is they digest a lot of raw research and help put it in the context. Well, they have a proprietary S&P 500 50-day moving average spread model that shows in plain English, is the market oversold in their proprietary research um, or is it overbought conditions? And um, to to tell you how extremely oversold the market is, based upon their proprietary S and P five hundred fifty day moving average spread model, um, it is three standard deviations from the average, very very extreme. And uh, it's not to say it can't hang out at these levels. It's not to say the market's going to bounce back instantaneous. But what I'm getting at is, from a statistical side of the equation, the model that they have tends to not hang out at this uh, this area very long. Again, quoting statistics, quoting history, these things tend to repeat themselves. And I, listeners, fall into the camp that it's not different this time. It's a different reason for the sell-off. And I want you to take Mark and I's words as voice of reason is the best way to say
1: it. Yeah. Well, it's just I think that it's helpful that, you know, these, this is actual factual data that we're quoting. And most of this fear and panic over the past week, week and a half has come from, well, how is this going to impact or what's going to happen in the future? And the thing is, like we always say, Matt, no one can predict.
2: We no, can I mean, back over yeah, history. Absolutely. Is it going to have an impact to uh, global growth numbers in the first and second quarter? Highly, highly likely. Uh, But, you know, I think we fast forward to the holiday spending season, and is this going to impact the U.S. consumer's ability to buy that brand new shiny iPhone that comes out in the fall? I mean, they can't probably not, right? So, um, you know, we'll see. Again, short-term disruption, absolutely. But I don't think this derails the longer-term picture of some of the big important uh, portfolio themes that we take advantage of for our clients, one of those being U.S. consumers. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I agree with you there. I'll turn it back to you, Mark, for the uh, financial planning topic of the week.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. So um, so enough talk about uh, the coronavirus. Um, and on to uh, financial planning. So this week's topic comes from uh, Nick Majuli. Again, we've quoted his work before from Ritholt's Wealth Management. Um, We've talked about uh, his stuff plenty of times from his blog of dollars and data. And this post discusses the difference between dollar cost averaging and lump sum investing. So this is a pretty hot topic amount around people, Matt, and I know we get this question uh, from clients of what's the better way to do it? So these are the two primary ways to think about investing, which is either investing the lump sum all at once or slowly putting your cash to work over a period of time. So his findings actually kind of surprised me a bit, and just wanted to bring this up this week and share with all of the listeners. Excellent. So to start, Nick defines lump sum investing and dollar cost averaging as the following. So lump sum investing is the act of investing all of your available money at once. The amount of money being invested is not important, only that the entire amount is invested immediately. So an example, Matt, someone receives an inheritance and you put that money to work all at one time. Okay. Got it dollar cost averaging is the act of investing all of your available money over time. How you decide to invest these funds over time is up to you. However, the typical approach is equal-sized payments over a specific period of time. For example, one payment a month for 12 months. So again, if for example, if you're inheriting, let's say $120,000, and investing $10,000 each month until you are fully invested with no more cash. So the one point I wanna make here that Nick, Nick makes as well though, Matt, is when you buy periodically into the market, for example, through your 401k every two weeks or every week, how often you get paid, you're actually making a small lump sum investment every time you buy. So this is true because you are investing all of your available money immediately. You're not letting cash sit on the sidelines like you would be for the DCA strategy. So in this article, you know if you're putting you know your contributions into your 401k every uh, two weeks, for example, that's considered lump sum investing because you don't have any other cash left over on the sidelines. okay So I just want to clarify that for the numbers that are quoted later. So Nick says this before going into anything else dollar cost averaging will underperform lump sum investing for most asset classes most of the time. And again, this is based on Nick's research and his findings. And I'm pretty sure this is based over a dollar cost averaging period of twelve to twenty four months, Matt. So this is not just like you're waiting a couple of weeks to do it. It's, you know, taking your time to at least a year put all this money to work. Okay. Roger that. So, here's the setup. The size of the DCA's underperformance will vary over time by asset class and by how long you take to average into your market of choice. For now, and like I said, Nick is assuming a 24-month, which is a two-year buying window for dollar cost averaging. To start, we're going to look at how a 24-month DCA performs compared to a lump sum investment in the S&P 500. If we look since 1997, DCA underperforms in 78% of starting months and by 4.8% on average by the end of its 24 month buying window. So again, I encourage everyone to check out this article because Nick has some really good visuals that help explain this even more. Um, so we did link to this article in our, uh, in our show notes. So go ahead and, and check this out even further. The only times when DCA beats lump sum investing is when the market crashes. For example, 1974, 2000, and 2008. And this is obviously true because dollar cost averaging buys into a falling market and thus gets a lower average price than lump sum investment would. So when assets rise, lump sum investing outperforms dollar cost averaging. But when assets fall, dollar cost averaging outperforms lump sum investing. Since most assets rise most of the time, this is why DCA underperform dollar cost averaging underperforms lump sum investing. So again, Matt, if we look at a chart of the S&P 500 over the last 50 years, it is a strong line from the lower left-hand corner of the chart to the upper right-hand corner of the chart. So over time, the point that Nick is making, um, you know, lump sum investing, investing your all your available cash at that given point in time generally does better. Yep. Um, so Nick also uh, conducted this research on assets other than U.S. stocks. So he did it on Bitcoin, U.S. treasuries, gold, international stocks, emerging markets. And he even did it on a 60% stock portfolio, 40% bond portfolio. Okay. So on average for all of these different markets, dollar cost averaging underperformed lump sum investing by 3% or more over 24 months in every single asset class uh, that was tested. Um, The only time again when dollar cost averaging beats lump sum investing is when the market crashes. So again, over the long term, I think that the point of this article is that, you know, people should be investing all of their available cash at once. And when I say that, I say that tongue in cheek, Matt, maybe, you know, over a month period, I'm not against that. But I strongly agree with Nick that, you know, just looking at the data, if you have a large lump sum, you shouldn't wait for, you know, 12 or 24 months down the road to, to invest. And the point he makes with that, what I want to get into a little bit is about valuations, right? Because everyone's like, the stock market is so highly valued right now, the CAPE ratio, which is the Shiller uh, cyclically, cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio that a lot of people use to value the market at any given point in time is above 30 right now. And that's usually based on a historical basis, Matt, pretty high. But if you look back, it was above 30 in 2017. And what has the market done since then? Yeah. So if you, if you wait and try to play this game with valuations, I think it's going to hurt you even more. Because while you look at it at a metric like the, the CAPE ratio, the cyclically, cyclically adjusted PE ratio, you know the markets were overvalued in 2017, but we continued to move higher. And in 2019, we were up 30%. So, yeah, I mean,
2: overlay that with a 1% 10-year bond, you know?
1: Right, exactly. So, you know, I think that people get themselves into trouble if they think about valuations too much. But again, I'm not against over a one or even two-month period of putting money to work slowly over time. But having that longer dollar cost averaging time horizon, like 12 or 24 months, I think the data shows that it, it is more harmful than, uh, than beneficial.
2: So it's interesting. I did not know the, uh, obviously the results of this piece of research till you just said it here. And, you know, my two cents is, you know, I think a dollar cost average chemo for two years, you know, I was anticipating what you said was going to be factual. And I agree with you, Mark, I think, you know, having a period of maybe one to two months to, to put, you know, a lump sum to work, um, I think would be prudent. Um, So I would uh, agree, and and the results uh, are are quite interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, again, and I I don't think that, you know, I I did that article justice. It's a pretty long article, so I really do encourage people to go check that out. It's on the podcast tab and show notes sub tab on our website, jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we have linked to that article. So uh, if you want to kind of dig more into the weeds about that, please go check that out. Uh, because Nick did a really good job explaining that. So um, I guess we do not have any other questions from listeners, Matt. Um, I will highlight that uh, next week we are having, again, uh, Brad McMillan on the podcast as a guest. And Brad is the chief investment officer of Commonwealth Financial Network, um, who Matt and I have a really strong relationship with. And uh, I think that he's going to be able to provide um, some good outlook for people uh, surrounding what's going on in the current environment right now uh, with this coronavirus and kind of get his thought on it, um, you know, just so listeners can have another outlet instead of just me and Matt on what our thoughts are. Um, I think it's going to be pretty interesting to see what Brad has to say. So Matt and I respect Brad pretty highly. um, So we're excited to have him on the podcast next Thursday.
2: Yeah, the guy's total rock star. I'm really looking forward to the value uh, that he's going to bring to the table for listeners. So I would highly, highly recommend that you listen in next week. Yeah, yeah, I agree.
1: All right. So um, with that being said, I'll throw it out there for listeners too, that we haven't had uh, questions submitted in a while. So um, if you want to, please uh, send me an email at mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, or you can tweet at me um, at Mark McEvely um, or at jessupwealth, our company Twitter handle. If you have questions that you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, or if you have questions for Brad next week that we can ask him. Um, But that's everything, Matt, Uh, we'll kind of just close it out uh, here this week. And we hope everyone has a good rest of the week and stay your course, stay calm. And uh, we'll be back with you here uh, in about seven
2: days. Perfectly put. Take care, everyone.
0: Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show, message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, We recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.